0: thanks again. That was awesome. Yeah. Two times in a row. Uh, awesome. Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning. My name is Art Cash. I'm an elder discipleship pastor here at River Oaks. It's my privilege to continue in the book of Esther with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Esther chapter one. We'll be in verses 10 through 22. So each year, Around the world, $200 billion is spent purchasing and collecting works of art. Okay, and each year, over $6 billion is spent on fakes and forgeries. Okay, in 2017, the Saudi crown prince Mohammed bin Salman spent $450 million on a da Vinci painting called Salvador Mundi, there it is, to put on display in his 439-foot yacht. I don't think many of us can imagine the yacht or owning the the painting. The only problem is the painting may not be real. It was likely not painted by da Vinci, but one of his students. So now, Salvador Mundi is rumored to no longer be on display in the yacht, but tucked away somewhere in a storage facility in Switzerland. Situations like this are why auction houses spend millions validating, authenticating works of art. Why they offer billions in insurance against counterfeits. As we have already heard this morning as, as we sang, as we've talked through this passage, in Esther, we're going to see the story of two kings and two kingdoms. One kingdom is counterfeit. One kingdom is real. One kingdom belongs to King Oshuares and one belongs to King Jesus The challenge for us now is the same as it was for the people of God when the book of Esther was written. They live and we live in a counterfeit kingdom. We are exiles in this world. This country is not our ultimate home. So then how do we keep our eyes upon the true king and the real kingdom in a world that's increasingly hostile to Jesus and his followers? How do we keep our hearts set on on Christ and the things above that we cannot see? When if we're honest, we're, we're constantly tempted by the comfort and the counterfeits in this kingdom that we can see and taste and smell and touch, tangible counterfeits. So at River Oaks, we talk a lot about focusing on the gospel so that when a counterfeit comes along, it's obvious. You've heard us talk about that. We focus so much on the truth that the lie is easy to spot. So perhaps the biggest challenge is, how can a book like Esther help us see Jesus and His kingdom when God himself appears nowhere in the book? He's unseen? Well, last week, we began to see God in Esther through the, the just so happens, the events of God's subtle sovereignty, his hidden Providence. This week, the book of Esther will help us see Jesus by first making us take a long look at a counterfeit king and his kingdom. As we see the ugliness of this kingdom revealed, it'll make us long for the beauty of our true King Jesus. And that really is our main point this morning. As the flaws in the counterfeit kingdom become more obvious, we will increasingly long for the real kingdom in our true king Jesus. It'll work like this. So if I ask you all you've been hearing is bad news, what are you longing for? Good news. Thank you. So if if it's been a while since you've had food and water, something that becomes a preference that you want becomes an actual need. The longer you go without food and water, it's it's not man, I really would like some. I need some. So we're going to see by the the absence of the true king, we're going to see by the ugliness of the counterfeit king how much we need Jesus. How do we distinguish between a forgery and an original? We carefully examine, we compare, we contrast the differences. So, as we look at this counterfeit king in his kingdom in chapter one, the, the flaws will be revealed. What appears to be strength will be revealed as weakness. What appears to be wisdom will be revealed as foolishness. So as we read the passage, I want you listening. Look, look for those flaws. Look for the cracks in the kingdom as we read this passage. So on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Oshuares, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshenna, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mimucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. The king asked, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ashuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the provinces of King Oshuares. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Oshuares commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same "'to all the king's officials, "'and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. "'If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him "'and let it be written among the laws "'of the Persians and the Medes, "'so that it may not be repealed, "'that Vashti is never again to come before King Oshuris, "'and let the king give her royal position to another "'who is better than she. "'So when the decree made by the king "'is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, "'for it is vast,' All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would pour out your spirit that we might understand your word, that we would be encouraged to see the true king by way of contrast. Father, my heart this morning continues to be for those who are weary, those who are struggling, those who are fearful, those with doubts. Father, I pray that your spirit would help us rest in the true king this morning pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, last week, in the first nine verses, we got our initial look at King Oshuares, also known in the Greeks as King Xerxes. Yes, that is the King Xerxes depicted in the movie 300. The Xerxes who invaded Greece twice and really was protected by 10,000 bodyguards known as immortals and I cannot commend the movie to you. (laughs) You don't need it anyway, because as we're going to see, the truth about King Xerxes, in some ways it's worse, in some ways just stranger than the fiction. But what does the book of Esther say that the king is like? How does the author depict this king? We, We haven't even met Esther and Mordecai yet, but based on the king's character, what can they expect from him? So back in verses 2 and 4, we got a little insight into King Oshuares. So while the king is is seated on his royal throne, he brings all the important people before him. And he shows off the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, six months. He even brings in the common folk in verse 5 for this week-long seven-day Banquet, so they can just be blessed by being in his presence, seeing the throne, seeing the beauty of the palace. Here's a king who wants to show off the opulent wealth of his kingdom. If his desire to show off and display were only limited to his throne and palace, we could just chalk this up to being shallow or superficial. You know, the, the guy that you maybe get the new iPhone, then he gets the one that's kind of the pearl green. He's like, look what I got. Okay, the one that... that Whatever you get that's new and nice, he's already got the next nice thing and wants to show you. It's more than that, though, with this king. He's, he's more than shallow, as we're going to see in verse 10. This, this king's pride, it's twisted up with a lack of self-control and perverse desires. When you see in verse 10 that on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that implication there is that he's drunk, And when you're drunk, the real you that hides inside comes out. So what comes out of the heart of this king? And he commands seven eunuchs to get Queen Vashti and to bring her before him and his drunk buddies. And by the way, don't forget her royal crown. Why? Because according to verse 11, he wants to show the people and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. This is as bad as it sounds. So how does she respond? When you look at verse 12, when Queen Vashti refuses his command to show up, the king becomes enraged. His anger burns within him. This is, we're witnessing a royal rage, a kingly conniption, if you will. This guy's furious. He's furious. We're witnessing a king who is ruled by his pride, his appetites, and emotions. So again, if we're looking for evidence that, that this king is a counterfeit, the flaws, the cracks in the kingdom, they're showing up early and often. So it's easy for us to, to look at this king just say, man, that's gross. This, guy, this guy's disgusting. But ask yourself, what would come out of your heart if you had absolute power and wealth? What's, what's lurking in there that would come out if you were never told no? What, what comes out of some hearts now when you're on your phone or at the click of a mouse when you're alone? There's, there's no end to that world of exploitation and debauchery. Not just the king, but how much is, is our counterfeit kingdom like ours? A, a world that oozes and ahs at those who are powerful and rich and famous, hanging on every sort of detail of whatever happened this week between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Who's going to slap who at the Oscars? <laughs> I mean, King Xerxes, he would fit right into our kingdom where the only real sin is self-denial and self-control. He would love our kingdom where addictions are fed, twisted desires are normalized, and corruption is celebrated. He would love this kingdom. So if this feels a little bit like an old school fire and brimstone sermon, it's because it is, (laughs) We are to look at this kingdom and laugh at its absurdity. We are to recoil from what it values, not long for the trash and trinkets that it offers. But we can't stop there. We can't settle for just railing against the counterfeit kingdom. If we stop there, then we're just the self-righteous cynic who's able to say, I'm wise, you're a fool, and look down on unbelievers around us. No, we can't stop there. we let the absurdity of this kingdom make us long for the reasonableness of the true kingdom. We're surrounded by what's irrational, what's illogical. Make that help you long for the true and rational king. We let the emptiness of this kingdom make us long to be filled by our true king. Because he first sought us, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We look for refuge and rest in the true king because we know his character. We know his heart. He tells us his heart. His heart is not twisted and perverse towards his kingdom. It's gentle and lowly. What a king. What a king that we worship. The true king. So Xerxes, he would... He would just be the sad story of a lecherous old man acting like a pagan, except that this man is king of the known world. His his weak character matters because of his immense power. The Greek historian Herodotus describes Ossuerus as occasionally sage and principled, but more often arbitrary, tyrannical, and a brutal despot. So there, there is a, this is brutal, but I want you to know what Esther and Mordecai are, are up against. There is uh, one historian that describes a situation where a noble came to King Xerxes and said, Please spare my son from going off to war. Xerxes didn't answer. Instead, he cut the son in half and had the armies march to, through the separate pieces as his answer. This man is powerful and dangerous. The narrator wants us to see that he is a dominating force, to see the extent of his reign, the reach of his power. How do we know? In the first chapter of Esther, 37 times we see the word king, kingdom, royal reign. This king has no rival. He is the definition of power. His kingdom spans three continents across Asia, Africa, and Europe, over 3 million square miles. Egyptian pharaohs, no problem. No problem. They fell to the Persian kingdom. Babylonian empire, Oshuaire's grandfather, King Cyrus conquered those guys, put them down, released the Jews back to Jerusalem. During Oshuaire's reign, he's put down uprisings in both Egypt and Babylon. He's known for, for going into Babylon, taking their solid gold statue of Marduk. And this was a deal for the Babylonians because they believed that their gods kind of inhabited the idols. Takes their solid gold idol and melts it down to just liquid gold. Here's the point two of Israel's most troublesome enemies, they're nothing but a footstool for King Xerxes. We know that this king had a high opinion of himself. He had this inscription on the screen carved in three languages into the side of a mountain, 70 feet up in the air in modern-day Turkey, where at the time, very few people were literate. So who was this sign for? Who's reading that? Is it, is it for the gods? Because it says, I'm Xerxes, the great king, king of kings, king of all kinds of people, king on this earth far and wide. <laughs> king Oshuares, he either believed he was a god or had the powers of the gods, he had 360 ships lashed together, is on the next slide, to build a floating bridge over the Hellespont to move his entire army into northern Greece. Okay, so when a storm destroyed those ships, the king decided to punish the sea. He came out with his priests, and they, they branded the water with red hot irons. They sunk shackles and fetters into the ocean, and meanwhile, the soldiers were all yelling at the sea. He's punishing the sea for for what it did. And then what did he do right after that? He rebuilt the bridge and moved his army into northern Greece. So what's the point? I mean, a king with with this much power, how, how should it be used? To protect those in his care, not to exploit them. But that's not what we see in verses 10 and 11. That's not what we see from this counterfeit king. The flaw is obvious. He lacks nothing. He can have anything and yet is greedy for more. What does he do with all that power? He commands his queen to be displayed like a sex object before him and his friends. And not that it makes it any better, but even in the Persian culture, that was wrong. Maybe you could treat a concubine that way, but not your wife. So it's tempting right here to to camp out, to let our our blood boil, to zero in on his actions for a bit and judge him as a man and as a husband. It's also tempting to, to paint Queen Vashti as a heroine standing up for her dignity, but the text is silent. It offers no moral judgment of the king for giving the command or the queen for disobeying it. So what could be more important? What could the narrator be setting us up to see? We're to see that the most powerful king in the world has a limit to his power. The queen's simple refusal to obey Oshuares, it exposes another flaw in this king. The irony here is thick. The king who controls fearsome armies, who subjugates powerful empires, attempts to control the ocean. He can't control What's happening in his own home? He's a fraud. The most powerful man in the world can't get the person closest to him to do what he wants. Who's really in control of this kingdom? Who actually reigns over these events and every event before and after? Who's really in control of this kingdom? It ain't Xerxes. The true king reigns. The true king is in control. He's orchestrating these exact events to bring about the rise of Esther and Mordecai and to save his people. Brothers and sisters, even though we currently live in a counterfeit kingdom, I'm thankful for the reality that we serve the true king. I hope you're seeing the contrast this morning. I'm thankful that we worship a king who actually is all-powerful, who is always good, and who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who rebukes the wind and the sea, and they obey the king who uses his power to care for the orphan and the widow and seek after the lost sheep. This is the king who left his throne of glory, not to subjugate a people, but to rescue them to himself. If you are here and your faith is in the true king, you have been rescued to him forever. By his sovereign grace, you belong to him. It can't be undone. He is the only true king. How unsearchable are this king's riches, his mercy, his patience, his grace. (laughs) As we look back at the counterfeit king, we'll see that wisdom is revealed to be foolishness. And as we approach verses 13 through 22, I want to equip you with a new tool in the toolbox for, for sanctification. I want us to have a new weapon in our arsenal as we fight to see the true king while we wait in a counterfeit kingdom. And that weapon is laughter. And some of us are better at that (laughs) than others. I I want you to stick with me here. The, the, The weapon is laughter. The tool is irony and satire. If you've already found yourself smirking just a little bit going, man, I'm seeing this here. This king, he supposedly controls everything, can't control what's happening in his his house. You're you're supposed to be smiling a little bit. You're on the right track. This is the author's intent. And we're going to see this with, with the advisors and the counsel that they give this king. We're going to see the satire. One of the marks of satire is absurdity. And it's going to come through loudly and clearly. According to Ian Dugan, this This book is meant to make us laugh. Here's why. For oppressed and powerless people, satire is a key weapon, cutting the vaunted splendor of the empire down to size. So, why is satire and pointed humor important? Duguid continues The one who is able to laugh in the face of the evil empire will never successfully be assimilated into it. That's so helpful. Satire is thus a powerful antidote to despair. So I didn't start like, writing the sermon, preparing application and thinking, I know what, I'll give them a biblical defense of the Babylon Bee. But here, <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. What, is this, what does this mean for us? Now I realize this, this is shocking for some because we're used to approaching the Word of God with somber reverence, and we should. I remember Mark and Jackie I want to say this like 14, 15 years ago. I'm a new Christian. They invite uh, these, these two folks to come and basically perform Esther here. And I hear that it's supposed to be a, a comedy routine. And, man, I got pretty judgy. I'm like, the, the Word of God? That we're not laughing at the Word of God? Here's what I was missing. It was awesome, by the way. It's the tone of the text. We're not laughing At the word of God, we're laughing with God at his enemies. There's a big difference. Laughter is a gift from God. Laughter is a gift from him because he knows us and he loves us and he knows we need it. So I didn't start the sermon setting out to give you an application to come to Rock the Flock next Saturday, but here we are. (laughs) You should come to it and we should laugh together. Laughter is a gift this book shows us that one way God reveals truth is by giving us permission to laugh at what is absurd. And it means that that humor is on the table as a strategy for coping with the wickedness around us. This is something that Jonathan Swift, George Orwell figured out a long time ago. So Jews to this day, when they celebrate the, the festival of Purim by reading Esther, every time that... Haman, the villain, his name is read over 50 times in, in the book. The, the children, they stomp, they clap, they laugh, they swing a noisemaker to blot out his name. They interact with the book. It's like their own sanctified Rocky Horror Picture Show. They're interacting <laughs> with the book and laughing at the enemies of God. Remember our call to worship. This this laughing at those who oppose God, it's his idea. As the nations rage and the people, people's plot in vain, what is the Lord doing? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 2, 4. We know how this story ends. The true king gets the last laugh. That should encourage you this morning. But for now, let's marvel. Marvel at the greatest storyteller of all time. Right, He could have just simply said to us, I mean, Esther could have been super short, counterfeit kingdom, bad, true kingdom, good, end of story. But instead, he gives us this, this story with, with colorful characters, memorable plot twists, and some humor. And he does so because he loves his people. He's a genius storyteller. And his humor is not just to ridicule enemies, but to teach us. He wants to show us the flaws of the counterfeit king and kingdom. As those flaws become more obvious, we will long for the real kingdom and the true King Jesus. So I I want you to, as we move through the second half there, put yourself in King Xerxes' laced up boots, right? Just put put yourself in his shoes. You're used to getting what you want when you want it. You had too much to drink one night. You made a fool of yourself about bragging about your smoking hot queen. You're so drunk you want to show her off to the boys. She says no. You get mad. You wake up the next morning with a headache and do what? Hopefully you've got your crown or whatever, that tall thing he wears, in your hand, and you're going to your queen and saying, I'm an idiot. Please forgive me. Is there anything I can do to to make this right? but that's not what happens. Look at, look at verse 13. When the, then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Clue one. The lengthy description of these guys, including all of their names, tells us what the narrator really thinks about these guys. The king cares what they think. These guys sit first in the kingdom. They're important. They have access to him. These are the movers, the shakers, the thinkers. So, verse 15, the king says, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Oshawaer delivered by the eunuchs. There's a red flag there for me. Anybody that ends up kind of referring to themselves in third person, I'm kind of, they're going to get the side, side eye. Okay? This is King Oshawera saying, she's not done what King Oshawa said. Well, King, you're right here. Just say, she's not done what I said she should do. Hmm. Evidence is, is mounting here. So understand that instead of going to the queen... To ask forgiveness for being a jerk, the king goes to the best and the brightest in the kingdom for legal advice. It's not like he even got with his buddies in a small group and went, hey, my wife is terrible. What should I do? He didn't go for, for personal advice. He went for legal advice. The king is escalating something that is personal and making it into something legal. That's foolish decision-making. And we could chalk this action up to the strong honor-shame culture of the Persian Empire. But if that were the case, then the wisest thing to do would have been for the king to punish Vashti quietly, keep the whole situation private. The less people that know about it, the less shame for the king. But the narrator wants us to ask another question. He wants to show us another crack in the kingdom. What kind of people would a counterfeit kingdom like this produce? Specifically, what type of advisors and leaders? These are well-educated elite of the day who are the experts in law and judgment. But are they? let's, Let's look at the advice that they give. Verse 16. Verse 16. Are they proving themselves to be wise? Then Mimucan said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in all the providences of King Oshuares. Is that even true? No, it's not. Mamukin, he amplifies a domestic offense and makes it a kingdom-wide emergency. On in 17, for the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt since they will say King Asherah commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So verse 18, 17, that's, we're just going to school on logic for a minute. That's a non sequitur. It does not follow that because Queen Vashti disobeyed the king, That will cause all women everywhere in the kingdom to behave the same way and treat their husbands with plenty of contempt and wrath. If we're honest, anybody that's married knows that there's certainly more than one reason that wrath and contempt can show up in a marriage. It's almost like these wise men. They think all women are the same. And there could only be one cause for their misbehavior. Memukin continues verse nineteen If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ashawaris, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Look what's happening here. Here's the irony. His advice is to ban Vashti from the king's presence which is exactly what she wants. And to be replaced by one who is better than she, and by better, he means one who is compliant. One the king can control. This is the way of the counterfeit kingdom. Might makes right. Compliance is happiness. These advisors, they're proving themselves fools. In an entire, we could veer off and have an entire sermon on the value, the dignity, and the worth that Jesus Christ sees in women. Not so in this kingdom, in this empire. So Mamukin continues in, in verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom... For it is vast. All women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Here's the absurdity. The king can't control his wife. So Mamukin thinks it's a good idea to try and control all the women in the entire kingdom and thinks a decree from the king will make them honor their husbands. Now, you can be honest here for a second, man. If that's ever worked, let me know that you've just told your wife, you will honor me. And then that just completely changes their motivations and then it's marital bliss and harmony. (laughs) What are these advisors doing? I guess they're not wasting a domestic dispute when they could use it to expand their power over others. And if they wanted to control the narrative, if they wanted to minimize, again, who all would hear about Vashti defying the king, the absolute way to not do it is to send out a decree to every person in the kingdom, telling them what happened. They're proving themselves fools. They don't understand the times, they don't understand the law, women, or the motives of the human heart. But there's still a chance here in the story. There's still a chance. the, the king could hear this from Amukin. He could hear it and go, "That is ridiculous." Get out of here. I want to get this Mimuken guy replaced. Give me somebody else in my presence who can, can speak some sense. But alas, it's, it's not to be. And we see in verse 21 this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. Why didn't the king reject this foolishness? It's because he liked what he heard. This advice pleased the king. We have more in common with this king than we want to admit. Mm -hmm. We, We prove ourselves foolish when we surround ourselves with friends who only tell us what we want to hear. The king had a chance to reject this foolishness. The reason our friend's bad counsel resonates with us is because our hearts want it to. Sometimes we're just looking for validation from our friends for the sinful desires that we already are doing. We just want them to say, that's right, go ahead. You do you, you be you. So in your circle of friends, and your advisors, do you have more people telling you to be true to yourself or true to the word of God? Do you have more friends telling you to look out for yourself or to look out for how you can honor God. Listen, brothers and sisters, a clear sign that you are in the kingdom is that you want your foolishness confronted. When you are, as my grandmother used to say, acting a fool, you you want somebody to say, stop being stupid. (laughs) Don't do that. We need that. You need that. I need that. And you know that you have true kingdom friends when they are more committed to telling you the truth than to telling you what you want to hear. Don't run away from that, friends. Don't, don't cut the people out of your life that are actually speaking truth to you. So the king likes what he's been told. He does what Mimucan proposes he sends letters to all the royal provinces, to every person in their own language, according to verse 21 and 22. Every man should be master in his own home. I want you to think, slow down for a second, and think of the time, the expense, and the manpower that went into writing a letter to every person in 127 provinces, the papyrus, the ink, the, the horseback of getting that letter out there. It's vast and it's ridiculous overreach. How are they going to enforce this new law? Are they, are they creating like this czar of the Department of Domestic Security and they're knocking on doors and going, Excuse me, sir, is your wife obeying you today? And then what if the answer is no? How do they enforce any consequences? It's absurd it's okay to laugh at what's absurd in the foolish king and his kingdom. The similarities between this counterfeit kingdom and our worldly kingdom are striking. I want to be clear. America is not the promised land. As a faulty hermeneutic eschatology, all roll into one. We are not the promised land. But believers anywhere are, in fact, the people of God and oppression is coming for believers here. Perhaps you're skeptical that, that Christians are somehow an oppressed minority. Natasha Crane in her wonderful book, Faithfully Different, I commend that book to each of you. She makes the case that only 2% of Americans have a biblical worldview. You might hear Barna in different studies that say, oh, it's 35%, it's 64%. That's the people who identify as a Christian, those who have a true biblical worldview, 2%. That's going to make you stick out in the counterfeit kingdom. You will be odd in the counterfeit kingdom and that's good. That's good. You are to be salt and light. Many of you are here in Tennessee. You're at River Oaks today because you made the difficult decision to flee the oppressive, foolish, secular culture back home. I know because I talked to you at the visitor's luncheon and you tell me, yes, it was exactly like you see and you've heard only worse. You found that institutions and their leaders not only left you no room to practice your faith, but were actively antagonistic to Christianity. Let's say, welcome. We're glad you're here. Share your stories with those of us born and raised here. Share your stories with those of us who are insulated. Help us learn. Help us see what's coming. So what are believers to do? Since in the counterfeit kingdom, wealth and fame and power, intimidation, fear, that's how things get done. Do we just wring our hands? Do we just swap stories of how terrible things are? Do we, Okay, we're allowed to laugh now. So do we laugh to keep from crying? Maybe Sometimes. <laughs> One of the main things we do is we continue to meet together. We remind each other of who actually reigns and how he rules. Unlike da Vinci, Salvador Mundi, there's there's no question about the authenticity of the true savior of the world. The way of the true king is the way of the cross. And the cross appears as foolishness to the world. You will stand out. You will be odd. When you say that the way is the cross, but we preach Christ and him crucified. To us who are being saved, it's the power of God. To those who belong to the true king, Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 24, one twenty four, And because of God, you're in Christ. You're in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30 the ladies that were at the retreat this weekend, you talked about your identity. You are not your failures as a mom. You're not your failures as a worker, as a wife. You are not any of those things. You actually find your truest identity in your union with the true king. That's who you are. Because of your union with the true king, you get every kingdom benefit that he offers. You get Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption and on and on. You get the true king because he bought you with his life. His promise to keep you forever is what we celebrate with communion. The true king does not sit back and congratulate himself on his generosity for giving a week-long banquet to the common folk. With communion, we celebrate the never-ending generosity of King Jesus who gave himself. With communion, we're purposefully reminding ourselves one more time that the King of glory gave himself as a ransom for many. This king invites to this table Every single fool that he has made wise through the power of the cross. You're invited to come to this table and feast forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how, just the variety of it. How you you, you tell us truth in the epistles. You give us wisdom. You tell us history. And even here we get to see your humor. We get to see this this counterfeit kingdom, the absurdity of it. Father, I pray that by your spirit and through the work of King Jesus, you would help us long more for you to have our rest, our identity, our joy found completely in the true King and the true kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.